0: This is a solemn moment in the history of mankind. Man into space for the first time. Future generations will long remember us. As long as we're not blown to smithereens. Liberty, my friends! Liberty! Be back as soon as I can! Hello, once again, and welcome to another episode of the I Double the Intermillennium Media Project podcast. My name is Matthew Porter, and I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad. He's my son, and we're continuing or, or closing out H.G. Wells month. Wells, Wells, Wells. I think you made that joke uh, six weeks ago. I did but, I, Okay, <laughs> but uh, who knows uh, when it happened in time, though? Exactly, especially after <laughs> the last episode. So we've talked so far, and I've I've made Ian watch another movie, because we've talked so far about The War of the Worlds from 1953, the 1953 movie version. We have talked about The Time Machine, George Powell's 1960 version with Rod Taylor. And now we're going to talk about another movie adaptation of an H.G. Wells story from just a few years later, from 1964... The First Men in the Moon. Do you want to retake that, Dad? You said in. (laughs) I did. The First Men in the Moon. Oh. (laughs) Oh. I remember you expressing some confusion about that when we sat down to watch the movie also.
1: Yes. The... the That title just threw me. I'd never heard of this H.G. Wells story. Sometimes I get to talk about like, oh, yeah, I know of this one. Or, oh, yeah, I've seen adaptations. I didn't even know this existed.
0: This is definitely not as well-known a story from Wells as either The Time Machine or War of the Worlds. And I did not know about it independent of having seen this movie until much later. I knew that was an adaptation of, of H.G. Wells, but the movie was my first exposure to this. And, and yet the movie is something that I saw several times growing up. Once again, shout out to WABC-TV in its 430 movie. Uh, that's when I wound up seeing this a couple of times. And it's a very different kind of movie than any of the other Wells adaptations we have, uh, have looked at so far. Yeah, this is a very different feel of a story. There were aspects of showing you this that were fun in the way that showing you Capricorn 1 was fun. <laughs> oh, yes. Where Capricorn 1, all I had to do is tell you, oh, it's a movie about a mission to Mars, and just let the surprise hit you. Here, the, the title art on the DVD and other stuff, give it away a little bit if, you've, if you got to see that. But it starts out in what looks like maybe the late 1960s, a United Nations mission to the moon, the first men landing on the lunar surface. Yeah, it
1: it gives me it the opening is shot in a way that makes me think of the movie Alien. It's got this like proper like submarine quarters, tight ship space travel thing with all the pads and everything. It's got these people with all their like national flags on their suits, you know, performing things, doing airlocks for the moon
0: I, and a decontamination sequence that was interesting i thought that was very thoughtful decontaminating the astronauts as they were leaving the i mean landing I, craft i guess if you want to study what the, what's coming back with them but who or knows just I, maybe they are concerned there might be some lunar biome they don't want to uh to contaminate yeah very thoughtful
1: yeah but they send people down and they're exploring around and they find Tucked into a pair of rocks, a small British flag. <laughs> There's a Union Jack on the moon. And a note claiming it for the Queen, written on the back of a, a court summons.
0: <laughs> and this summons that the, the declaration has been written on the back of is the only information they have about who might be related to this and there's some wonderful bits with the the astronauts from the UN mission not really wanting to radio back to earth about this because it's going to sound so crazy and it honestly it, it it set me up for something that was like a
1: a spy thriller in some ways as you know we immediately cut to like NASA agents Space agency agents and NASA people like trying to show up at British courthouses to find old
0: documents. International space cops. Yes. Going all over Britain trying to track down the people who are in the places that are mentioned in this this legal summons from 100 years ago. It felt like something you'd send Lady Penelope of the Thunderbirds to go deal with. (laughs) Very
1: much, very much. And then they meet this guy at the courthouse and he's a little too goofy. My feeling about the tone of this film just started to shift and I'm like, I'm not, this guy seems out of place. I'm not so sure.
2: And then we go meet the guy he remembered in this old, uh, like, I can't even tell what it was supposed to be. It was like a, like an apartment
0: complex
1: Like, care facility kind of thing? I
0: think it's kind of an elderly care home.
1: Yeah, but this guy has this very, very cluttered room with a telescope in the corner kind of thing going on. And he's a little kooky. And I start to immediately have a, oh, this movie's going to have a very different
2: tone than I thought kind of feeling. Oh. (laughs) Because then we get to the
1: flashback.
0: So once again, it's a movie that's bookended by a modern day story, but the flashback is all of what happened back in the Victorian era.
1: And this is absolutely pure, the absent-minded professor flubber kind of <laughs> tone vibes for the rest of this ride, I'm telling you now.
0: It re- really is. It, it quickly, you quickly realize it's a a romantic comedy with super science yes and and the 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 absent-minded scientist is not the main character hero kind of role no he's the neighbor there's
1: this this writer who is playing a little fast and loose with his money and his creditors
0: well these days he's saying that he's a writer but he doesn't seem to have written a word. He also seems to be an entrepreneur because he's put some various investments into like army surplus boots, and that hasn't gone anywhere. I'm not quite sure he knows what he is, Yeah, except that he doesn't want to actually work a job. His girlfriend is co- comes over to the cottage
1: he's staying in a lot, and meanwhile there is a, a rambunctious neighbor who's a, a scientist of some sort.
0: And that's kind of our initial setup. So our three leads are uh, Edward Judd, who's playing Bedford, who's the kind of ne'er-do-well doesn't really want to work, but doesn't have a source of income. Martha Heyer as Kate calendar to whom he, Bedford is sort of engaged, but he's never settled down enough financially or any other way to actually get married. And then Lionel Jeffries as Joseph Caver, who's the, the wacky scientist.
1: You've described before the kind of the lead characters in these HG. Well, stories being these square drawed, two fisted men of science and remarkably enough, w- between their personalities and what they bring to this little trio, our main character is very square drawn His girlfriend is remarkably two-fisted in the amount of brash <laughs> danger she performs. And there's a man of science. They kind of total one action hero, but none of them are that in their entirety
0: yeah it's kate who's the one who will who will decide you know we should bring a gun exactly (laughs) take this shotgun (laughs) exactly she's she's kind of the
1: terrifying dangerous one and it means that as a as a crew of three especially just as we're initially being introduced to them they fit together very well as a comedic trio but You've kind of got to get used to the fact that none of them are great on their own.
0: And the story hinges around what Kaver is tinkering with, what he is, has invented and is trying to figure out a way to better produce. And that is a substance that he has called Caverite. Caverite, Which, it is a very hand-wavy... Explanation of what it is and how it works, but it's a good hand wavy explanation of what it is and how it works. Yeah, he's made gravitation mirrors. Yeah, it's gravity shielding. He's saying just as radio waves can be shielded with lead and just as heavy fabric can shield you sun- from sunlight, he's invented a substance that can shield things from gravity. And he's made it so that you just paint it
1: on, and once it's dry, it floats.
0: <laughs> and of course, Bedford gets wind of this and starts thinking, "Oh, this seems like it's very valuable. I'm going to invest in this." So, what are you? You're planning on doing with this, uh, Doctor Caver? Oh, you know, trip to the moon.
2: Oh, wait, what? <laughs>
0: And here, once again, Caver has jumped the gun and built a full-sized contraption. That all, all he needs is to figure out how to make enough Caverite. You see, this is where he needs to take a lesson
1: from George in our previous time—the tri- time machine episode. You build a small, overly detailed working model and <laughs> show that to your potential investors. You don't jump straight to building the full-sized man version wait a minute, actually he might have gotten this idea from George from the time machine. <laughs> That's what he did in that as well. I think this is a cha- trend between H.G. Wells's characters. They build full-size models too early.
0: Yeah, well, I guess there's not much of a story if, if they build a little working prototype and say, oh, cool, looks like it works. All right, what's next? <laughs> well, they do test it out on a chair. They do. Which is where you... If there's any doubt that this is having spending a little time in slapstick comedy land, that uh, will make it very clear.
1: Are you a fan of the uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Charlo- Chocolate Factory movie? Did you like the fizzy lifting drinks scene? You want a movie of just that? <laughs> it's gonna be that.
0: But I like the contraption that that Caver has made. It's. They call it the sphere. It's a, a ball of, uh, uh, of interlocking plates, but it's covered in shutters or, or blinds, and the blinds are painted with cavorite. So by closing and opening different blinds, different amounts of the ship are shielded from gravity. It's almost, it's kind of sailing where he's like riding the gravity waves from Earth and then being pulled in by gravity waves from the moon. Yeah. It's kind of a neat idea.
1: It's, it is is actually a very clever way to like propel a device in that way. And, and he's got the entire thing like studded with railway stoppers. So it's this giant ball with these giant stoppers from to land on. And the inside is like Cage netting and plush outs
0: and, and like a plush wall padding. You gotta have tons of tufted velvet if you're gonna build a contraption in the Victorian era. Absolutely. And I'm just like, this is
1: the most like. I'm sorry, shutter blinds everywhere, like blinds everywhere, and this padded interior. This is a remarkably lush moon
0: capsule. <laughs> it's like this thing's kinda chill. I like it. <laughs> kind of see building a replica just as a place to hang out and listen to music, right? Exactly.
1: I, I, this, I, I can get behind this design, <laughs> and I was really surprised. I, I, I don't like the fact that he has to, because he can't let the calvite right cool or else it'll just launch itself to space already. He has to put it in an overly heated greenhouse guarded by geese, <laughs> which just adds layers of comedy and awkwardness. <laughs> yes, but it, there's this entire, like, it's not a montage, but there's this, like, energetic prep section of our story as they build the the final version of this and get themselves ready for their two-man trip to the moon.
0: One reason for a lot of that slapstick comedy was the fact that I think they were padding this movie quite a bit. Yeah. They didn't quite have enough story for the running time they wanted, so there's lots of things about Caver not being able to get decent help to stoke his furnaces and and things blow up and they get a setback and Edward winds up having to shovel coal himself. But
1: well, when they blow up, they blow up. The house explodes and all the things get coated in kaverite that was in the furnace, which means that they immediately fly up into the air and so his house exploding is responded to with a it works you see it's all up there it works that which is, is a cool true. little moment
0: that's true we his is when his chimney goes instead of crumbling it floats it, it rockets into the sky because there's no gravity to hold it back uh and that's their first sign that yeah this is going to work at scale so i guess that did have a story component to it but it just seemed like they they could have gotten to the exciting stuff quicker than they did they could have but i guess they wanted to set a light tone and and add some comedy
1: but they they're getting their thing ready and they are going to fly to the moon and they're they're packing for for our two men of action to go on the trip and due to circumstances and chaos also involving the fact that um police have shown up to Investigate the girlfriend and our main character for potential tax fraud in terms of the way they traded their sta- traded this cab as cottage estate to invest the money.
0: Yeah, he signed the cottage over to her so that they could then sell it, so that they could then use the money to finance what they were doing with Caver. And that's all fine and good, except the fact that he didn't really own the cottage in the first place. <laughs> So, yeah, she is being summoned to court over a, a suit about fraudulent transfer of property.
1: So she climbs in with
0: them now. Yeah, she goes over to yell at them about this, uh, this summons that she's been presented with and winds up on the trip.
1: And so our three heroes launch themselves into space to go to the moon.
0: And that one shot of the, 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 the moon sphere launching through the roof of his greenhouse that's kind of the iconic shot of this movie for me
1: it is that is a very very well done shot it's just got this like all of all of the weird comedic aspects and all of the serious science will happen get out of the way of it all <laughs> all comes to a head right there
0: and that's when we get a pretty long sequence of the journey from the earth to the moon yeah, which to their credit, it's not like that just takes a couple of hours and they acknowledge they really kind of lost track of how long it has taken. Yeah, it it it
1: takes a remarkably realistic amount of time for them <laughs> to get there. They're making breakfast and everything. I do wonder how they have gravity to do things inside the capsule. I guess acceleration, but yeah. Well, they did they because they were floating around quite a bit. They were, but there were some scenes where they're just standing.
0: Oh, we're there? Yeah. That's a good point. Velcro Velvet? I don't know. Yeah. Velcro (laughs) Velvet. Now, that sounds like a a, a 70s glam rock band. Yeah, that's either a 70s glam rock band or a single EDM producer.
1: (laughs) (sighs) Same naming conventions.
0: Anyway. (laughs) Yeah. And they have a little bit of a problem on the way when uh, Kate uh, opens the, the wrong shutter at the wrong time so that she can see out a porthole. And it sends them off course into the sun. Yeah, what? Like, you know, there's a lot of space, but now opening this, uh, this shutter, it just happened to send them towards the sun, which they would manage to course correct for in a matter of seconds. So I'm not sure why they made such a big deal out of that.
1: It's a very odd travel aspect in that, <laughs> but they do show that the landing on the moon's not going to be a smooth process when they- come to a rolling stop
0: yeah this is a a a sphere studded with uh, as you said the the railway stops the very stiff shock absorbers it is not an easy landing and i in watching this now i'm thinking about the fact that that's essentially how some of the mars rovers landed yeah it's kind of wild
1: this is actually current modern day things you replace those railway stoppers with airbags and like we're dropping we're dropping uh (laughs) machinery onto onto other planets using this exact same method it's wild
0: <laughs> and the movie red planet has a manned capsule landing in essentially the same way yeah so you know they were ahead of their time they really were Th- that's the thing there's a, there's continually
1: little bits of like once you ex- once you suspend a touch of disbelief for these tiny moments it will play by the book on all the other pieces it's given you. It's like, I appreciate that. This will actually like work, which is why I get very upset when they leave the capsule a moment later.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they leave the capsule and they came prepared with slightly modified diving suits. Apparently.
2: Yeah. I'm really mad. There was no gloves.
0: Yes. They go to all this trouble and they're not wearing any gloves.
1: I mean, I can understand you want the actors to be able to pick stuff up on your movie and everything else, but you played by the book on science so right for so long, and I just looked at that and said, "They're dead, dang it!" Ah, it broke my suspension of disbelief right there, and so I wanted to bring up that that point of contention for me, but I I I was all excited about how well they were doing the landing sequence up till then.
0: Watching the movie this time, though. I did have in mind something we watched recently on Tom Scott's YouTube channel. Oh? And that was the lunar spacesuit designed by the, inter- the British Interplanetary Society. Oh! Remember that? And it was... Yeah! I'm not saying that it was a, a diving suit, but there were aspects that reminded me of what we see here. So that was kind of fun.
1: Yeah, there was stuff that was on that same sort of level. It does
2: have, it does have some similarities to that. It, it's, it's
0: period appropriate space travel. <laughs> and, and they only had the two suits, though, so Kate had to stay in the, in the sphere. Yeah, they've got a little
1: air, airtight compartment area that she can stay in, and they use the, the rest of the capsule as an airlock for a moment. But and, he wants to be able to get out there and you know, prove they did this and claim it. So he takes a little stick flag and the, the paper she had on hand, which was the court summons she was given, and they write the note that we find at the beginning of the film.
0: Yeah, he brought the flag, but it hadn't occurred to him to bring any kind of a plaque or or or, or anything. So they just scrawl this little message claiming the moon for Queen Victoria. And he's starting to get like, he's starting to have some trouble. His
1: oxygen's a little too high, and Caverite is. Is he fighting off a cold at this point? Caver? I yeah. don't think so. Was he? I don't remember. Maybe. I think he is. I okay. think they mentioned it at least once by then. Yeah. So he's not doing well, but he's too excited to stop.
0: So they run around the moon looking at stuff. And the reason Caver convinced Bedford to, uh, to go on this trip to the moon instead of using caverite for something more practical and, and lucrative was promising that there, there's lots of valuable minerals on the moon. We can go there, scoop them up, and come back.
1: Yeah, mining rights. Or well, um, salvage.
0: And it's shortly after this that you learn why the title is what it is.
2: Yeah,
1: we've had it transition from the, the dramatic kind of space spy movie at the really early bit to this kind of slapstick sci-fi comedy. And now it takes another turn into a proper H.G. Wells weirdness. As they find a giant gateway hole in the surface of the moon.
0: Some kind of a hatchway. Yeah. Aperture that leads down into this complex system of tunnels.
2: With a breathable atmosphere in it. Yeah. And inhabitants. Moon people.
0: (laughs) There's moon people in here. There are moon people. Well, we're calling them moon people. They're very insect-like. Yeah. And they seem to behave in a very hive-like kind of, of manner. And these are the Selenites who who drive most of the rest of the plot. Yeah. And the Selenites, they they capture Bedford and Caver at, at spear point, and Bedford starts fighting back, and this greatly upsets Cavert because he wanted to communicate with them and, and establish some kind of relations with the Selenites. And they're led into the Selenite caverns.
1: Meanwhile, the Selenites have also apparently taken to the Morlock school of uh, dealing with people parking outside of your, your base by <laughs> tracking the the moon capsule they found on the surface into their caves as well.
0: Yeah, they have a little um, reversal there where... Caver and Bedford fight back and are able to escape, but then they find out that they've taken the sphere with Kate inside, so they've got to go back in to rescue her.
1: Meanwhile, the Selenites quickly learned that was a bad idea because Kate's got an elephant gun and a pun <laughs> yes. and a remarkable amount of shot she brought with us <laughs> on, on our space travel. So I guess like, we're going to teach these Selenites to fear her. Very quickly.
0: Yeah, so the, the Sphere is in a Selenite cave, and they're disassembling it and trying to get in through the hatchway, and meanwhile she's defending it at gunpoint.
1: Yeah, she's firing off rounds, and the Selenites are you know, fleeing from that hatchway, but still ripping pieces of cavorite coated uh, plating off of the, uh, the Sphere left and right.
0: And it's a good thing that, that she could buy time, because trying to come back in... Bedford and Caver and wind up having to deal with a giant caterpillar. Yeah, a moon cow. And Caver is one of these sci-fi scientists who he can see something for the very first time and rattle off all the reasons, what it is and why it's done this way and how it's used. He, he knew that the inhabitants of the lunar underground were called selenites, and I don't know how he knew that. Yeah. Uh, He immediately knew that this was a giant creature that the Selenites raise for food like we raise cattle. Now, I suppose he could be making all this up, and what is Bedford going to say he's
1: wrong? I don't know. Exactly. But this is where some of there's excellent Ray Harryhausen work of these-
0: Yes, Ray Harryhausen did the effects for this.
1: Harryhausen did the effects, and honestly, like, it is- this is pure Harryhausen magic in terms of, like, these scale model- worm things being superimposed to be these gigantic things. This terrifying snapping jaws kind of effect.
0: Is there if there isn't a giant stop motion monster, was Harryhausen really involved? Probably not. So I'm glad we saw the giant caterpillar. And apparently Caver was right because the Selenites show up with an electric cattle prod gun type thing and eventually subdue the giant a caterpillar and
1: uh, remarkably cleanly dis- disassemble this creature.
0: Yeah, right down to its skeleton. Uh, uh, its caterpillar skeleton cal- with ca- its little mandible bones. It's like that—that's not how. Uh, it's not how this works. But maybe, it looks cool. Maybe
1: this is how this works. We're on the moon. I in the moon. I don't know. It, that just. <laughs> That just hurt a little again. I'm like, they, they have no gloves, and this thing's got bones. I,
0: I, I'm starting to lose <laughs> it, Dad. It's like those spider skeletons you can see on Amazon around Halloween. Yes! But then, um, no. No! The spider skeleton looks like a spider.
2: Yes! <laughs> but uh, it,
0: it looked great, so I'm not going to say they should have done anything different on that.
2: Exactly. Uh... And from there, uh, our heroes kind of get split up because Caver and Kate both get captured and
1: start to talk with the Selenites via crystal translator machine and and such. Meanwhile, our our hero is is bravely fighting his way through, trying to find them.
0: And there appear to be different groups of Selenites. There are the Drones, for lack of a better term, that we saw wielding spears and skeletonizing caterpillars. But then there are ones that are more intelligent and use more complicated machinery and learn English.
1: Learn English by by using a thing to replay the tirade of insults Kate is throwing at them (laughs) and start to break down how human speech is formulated via doing so. I applaud you. That's a clever way to learn a language. But they start kind of telling us about what they're doing a little. They want to, they want caberite and they want to understand it.
0: And the rest of the movie is kind of this tension between Bedford, who just wants to escape with Kate, of course, and it doesn't care how many Selenites he has to fight along the way. And Caver, who wants to communicate with the Selenites, who wants to learn about them, who wants to teach them about Earth and humanity. And Caver eventually winds up with like an audience with the Selenite leader.
1: Yeah. Well, they start to realize Caver is like the smart one of the group. He's this scientist. He has this information. He can answer stuff for us. And that means their leader wants to talk with him.
0: And as we've seen before, he's somebody who's eager to talk. He's happy to. He say he, he'll say he doesn't want to be interrupted, and then he'll prattle on about whatever he's working on. So he'll tell this Selenite leader whatever the leader wants to know. Exactly. And
1: so you know, Bedford was able to get Kate back, and they get off, but Caver is having this very long discussion with uh, with the leader, where he winds up, like, trying to explain the concept of war.
0: Yeah, they kind of get to that very quickly. Yeah. They get they get from the fact that there is no one single leader among humanity, the way there is for the Selenites. And that quickly turns into this discussion of, well, no, we don't get along and we have war against one another. And, oh, tell me more about war, Earthling. There's something very Lelu Dallas in the Fifth Element,
1: <laughs> looking up all of humanity and hitting upon entry W. Like, just like- wow, we got, we got to this devastating topic very quickly. (laughs) Oh, sorry about that. And almost as a brilliant, like firsthand example is him describing war, describing how humans will fight each other. And then it marches Bedford, (laughs) like just absolutely laying waste to Selenites in his path as he's like, come on, Caver, we've got to go. It's like, you just knocked out 12 guys. I don't even, <laughs> even know if you knocked out or killed them. I know, but we've got to go. It's like, thanks for proving my point.
0: Yeah, he has just plowed through selenites like you know, John Carter in a waistcoat, exactly. and rescued Caver um, from what, what Bedford explains is this is not an audience. You're on trial.
2: Yeah. So the daring escape is starting to be made. And Caver says, go on without me. Because, no, he's going he's gonna to tell the Selenites all about this. He's going to explain to them us. And so, they leave him behind.
0: I, I was never quite sure at the end there, was that simply a choice of on Kaver's part, and he, he always intended that, or he intended that before he made the, the call? Or was it just the fact that they were desperately trying to Get the sphere working again and get inside the sphere, and in the end, it just would have taken too long to get Caver in there as well. It's not very clear, but it was it it was definitely. Well, go on without me. I'm going to stay here. And it was it was pretty well shot that whole conflict, as as a lot of the conflicts and the little fight scenes were. They were some of them were pretty well shot. Yeah, once we get into the caverns, it's a very very nicely shot kind of dramatic piece there. Uh, So, yeah, Kate and Bedford are the ones who escape.
2: And this is where I think the weirdest part of the movie is. Because they got back to Earth, and then we cut back to our framing device. And the
1: human uh, UN Space Force has just found the same caves that were being described in this story.
2: And they find that the entire Selenite population and all of this civilization have perished. Because they all caught Kavarite's cold.
1: (laughs) And it ends with the well, he did have a very bad cold joke. And I'm sitting there staring at this realizing that we just wore the worlds to the selenite population (laughs) in the most like we didn't wait for them to come to us we went to them to do it this time
0: you can't reuse the twist and doing it here kind of hurts what it does a bit doesn't it oh my goodness and for some reason and the, the 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 people in the modern day framing at the end they're watching television footage of the moon mission and for some reason the caverns are all collapsing now that people are there
1: i do like how we get to see uh video footage of our uh spaceman barely escaping the rubble falling from
0: a tv camera and i'm just like i hope that was a remote camera (laughs) same it's like (laughs) wow we just lost a cameraman didn't we oh great yep so that's kind of how it wraps up it is that's how that, this movie ends Bedford finally got to tell the story of what they had done and had told no one and uh, And apparently they got back to Earth, and he and Kate married and lived their lives and Kate passed away a few years earlier and um now it's all coming to light and and yet, and yet there we do when we when they first kind of tracked down Bedford through the. The goofy guy at the courthouse and all that the person at the the care facility where he's living was talking about the fact that he's so agitated and he's always trying to write, write letters to people about the moon he, he's a little bit off his nut he's been trying to warn people not to go to the moon yeah all this time and was very upset when the space cops showed up and he learned from them that yep, there are people on the moon right now exactly and I take it because he thinks
1: that there's the, there's a big group of Selenites there, now f- full of information of humanity, who are not <laughs> going to be friendly the second time around. Not that they were specifically friendly the first, but...
0: So, it has, I would say, a... It has a dramatic ending. Yeah. But not necessarily a satisfying ending. Yes, that's a good way to describe it. This is...
1: It's not a completely like womp womp kind of ending to it all, but it is
2: a a, a weirdly like skidding halt of a narrative.
0: Mm-hmm. It is a movie that is several different movies cobbled into one. Yeah, some of them very intentionally, some of them more haphazardly. And some of those components work better than others. And they didn't really have an ending that was tying it all up very well. Shall we go into our final questions? Because that's got some interesting things. Well, I've got another little bit of context I want you to think about. I don't, can't decide if I want that as part of our final questions or not. Okay. This was released in 1964. Yes. A few months ago, we watched a movie released just four years later, a big chunk of which was set on the moon. Oh. 2001, A Space Odyssey. <laughs> that, isn't that mind-boggling? That was released four years later than this movie. That feels like they're a decade apart. It, yeah, it feels like they're, they are, in terms of filmmaking, completely different generations. But... I'm not going to say that objectively 2001 is not a better movie than first men in the moon, but I hesitate to say that the special effects are in some objective way better. They are just very, very different. There's a big difference between Ray Harryhausen special effects and Douglas Trumbull special effects like we get in 2001. Yeah. And they are conveying different things. Ray Harryhausen's effects are, are not trying to replicate what something would literally look like in the real world. I think Ray Harryhausen effects are trying to transport you into a different world. Harryhausen's effects and style there give
1: their stories an element of mythological status, not just because of the things he worked on,
2: but because there is something parable-like, there is something... Primal and a little disconnected. There is something like
1: the metaphor made physical about the way he presents stuff. Where, you know, Trumbull stuff is there showing this, like, here's what it would look like if we actually did it. Harryhausen is, here's what it would feel like if we actually did this. And that's a very different thing to portray.
0: Mm hmm. Yes. When I watched, when I was a kid and I watched 2001, that it really felt like I was seeing the future in which I was going to live. And that was extremely exciting and extremely energizing and motivating. When I watched a Ray Harryhausen movie, I never felt like, oh, this is real or is going to be real or ever was real. But it was just so much fun to watch as a component of storytelling it was it was unique in in 2001 a physical
1: still black monolith presents this feeling of unease and infinite depth in my mind a ray harryhausen black monolith is still somehow a block of black clay <laughs> but it's got little ripples animated into it mm. it's got little undulations that don't feel right despite still staying this black monolith because you're animating this sense of unease as much as you are a physical object
0: that is interesting i like that image because now that i think about it i can't really imagine 2001 a space odyssey with ray harryhausen special effects I could totally imagine 2010. Yeah. With Ray Harryhausen special effects with the creatures under the ice on Europa and with the the stars swirling around in the monolith and Jupiter collapsing. Ray Harryhausen would have had a different take on that. And it would have been fascinating. Yeah, he could, but he could have it would have been that sort of style. Yeah. And this movie is providing a nice bridge for us because um It's going to be June next, and June is Ray Harryhausen month on the IMMP. I'm excited. We've got some more Ray Harryhausen movies to watch. Get your clay ready. (laughs) But now that we've talked about uh, First Men in the Moon, which when I was watching this as a kid, I didn't realize it was Ray Harryhausen who had done the effects, and I never thought of this as a Ray Harryhausen movie. It it clearly is now that I've watched it again and, and thinking about the giant caterpillar and the other effects, but I never categorized it mentally as a Harryhausen movie. Hmm. But now that we've talked about that, I guess it is time for our final questions. (sighs) Screen or no screen?
1: I'm gonna say no screen.
0: Okay.
1: This movie is too weird. It threw me for too much of a loop.
2: There's fun little bits, but I don't know if it's worth sitting through it.
0: I... I I can't disagree with that. I understand. I still have a soft spot for some of the imagery and some of the fun steampunk stuff in this movie. I'm tempted to take a page from your book and say, yeah, screen this movie. Watch the the fun, twisty opening and the space cops finding Bedford and the initial interactions between Bedford and Caver and Kate as they're building all this stuff and once they land on the moon then turn the sound on the movie down put some electronic music on <laughs> and go on with your party yeah and, and leave all the weird trippy <laughs> visuals of the selenites in, in the galleries in the background of your party
1: yeah that that that's a that'd be a way to show this film <laughs>
0: <laughs> but if you're really saying you know, should i watch this movie or not i don't know no. it's it's hard for me to say no screen but I, for most people, I would say no, there are better things to do with your time. No screen. Yeah. That brings us to our our second question. Revive, reboot, or rest in peace? Well, it's kind of
1: hard to do a revival when the entire ending of the story is the enemies
0: on the moon all died. Well, the only revival I can think of would be how long did that take? I guess. Was Cavour living on the moon with the Selenites for any appreciable length of time? There could be an interesting story of drama and pathos there. Maybe he lived for decades with the the Selenites and taught them and learned from them, and they they were coming to an accord about how to the earth and the moon could work together for their mutual benefit and live in peace and harmony and, and achievement. But all the while something was happening among the Selenites. And more and more of them were getting sick. And their scientists were having trouble figuring out why. That that could be an interesting That'd story. Be a, an awfully sad story. It would be. But heck, there's a lot of drama there. There is. Dang it, you pulled a very interesting drama story out of that. Ooh. So I that would be too depressing to watch, so I'm not going to say that I want to see it. But yeah. The possibility is there. So I I don't think I need a, a revival.
1: So that leaves us to reboot. And I will say I think that's what I'm voting for, but not because of anything specific. It's because you started out with a movie about something going wrong on the moon landing and you sending out investigators to find things out on earth and I want my dang space investigators movie. I want my spy thriller about who got to the moon first. You faked me out with this film and I want the movie I thought I was getting. Where is it? We've got we've got we've got a, a lady with a briefcase and a sassy attitude marching into Brit into a British courthouse to look through old documents because someone messed up something and it's her job to fix it. And I need that film right now. That was that that got me so pumped, and I just it was just a, it was just a slow slide down the moon sand the rest of the way for me.
0: Well, maybe that would be the revival, would be the, the Space Cops. Maybe. Maybe there are other things for them to investigate. But yeah, a, a a reboot, a retelling that focused more on their investigation, that could have been interesting. It could have been interesting. Now, there is at least one other adaptation that I'm aware of. Oh. A 2010 BBC adaptation. Ooh. Starring Mark Gaddis. Interesting. So, and I haven't seen that, but I'd be interested in giving that a look. And I don't know... Having not seen it, I don't know whether they took a comedic approach to it, a deadly serious approach, something in between, but... uh, Still, that'd be interesting to take a look at. Yeah, because there is a lot of potential there in the story. Yeah. But it's hard, it would be hard not to, well, I say it would be hard not to make it a period piece because people actually have been to the moon and didn't find Selenites as far as I know, unless... Unless you weave into it kind of a conspiracy story where, oh yeah, Apollo missions did get to the moon and they did find selenites or the remains of selenites.
1: That would be interesting. Do it as a, they, the thing that sets it off isn't finding the flag and the note, but finding <laughs> a selenite artifact or even a preserved selenite. And that being a thing brought back from the moon. And then you go on an investigation. And you spend an entire movie where, instead of this flashback telling us the story in a linear fashion, you wind up with someone who's investigating things, and they wind up finding strange reports of something happening in London at this time. Hmm. They find uh, an investigator who found a piece of rock that was with weird properties and this stuff coating it that's been investigated by a couple of uh, research labs for the last few years, but they've never had any success replicating it. <laughs> you wind up finding documents about requisition of all these different parts, oh, which I like don't it. make sense if he's ordering it from these different places. But when you start piecing it together, you wind up with a blueprint of this capsule and the suits inside, and you start to piece together, wait a minute, he's building a moon pod. And like, Doing that as an investigation, kind of watching the board fill out with with pictures and documents and red string (laughs) as this one audience surrogate pieces together the story
0: backwards could be interesting. Here's something I would want to include, either as the initial trigger or something that's discovered later is, I guess it would be Bedford. At some point, there's like an architectural survey of a house that he owned or had built And for decades, people have just looked at this and said, wow, this is a spectacular house. It's kind of amazing architecture. And then someone on this survey who is an architect and an engineer looks at it more carefully and says, I'm sorry, but this house is impossible. Yes. This house, it is impossible for this house to hold itself up. We couldn't build this house today, let alone when Bedford built it. Am I crazy or is physics broken? Yes! And then, like, they find out that, oh, up in the attic, the roof of the main atrium of this house that should not be able to stand up on its own is painted with this strange substance.
1: Yes! There's <laughs> just, like, a, a, like three beams painted with cavorite, just right. holding the entire thing up. Yep. Like a circus tent in that sense. That'd be brilliant! See, there's little things you can do, but you've got to kind of take the way... Take all the pieces and twist them and reorganize them. You've got to shuffle this deck of cards yeah. to make a film that would be that would have the right tension curve and interest curve, in my opinion.
0: The one thing you would have to do, though, is the the, the journey of, of Bedford and Caver to the moon would have to have taken place decades prior to the first official moon landing. Right. So it would have to be a period piece in that regard. Yeah, you can't not make a period piece in that sense.
1: There is there's, there's uh, more strict time limits than we've had in other film stories. But there's interesting things you could do with this. So, yeah. my response is
0: reboot. Me too. I think it's it's an interesting enough story. There's enough you could do with it. I would be interested in seeing a reboot and I'll I'll take a look at that BBC version at some point oh, too. Yeah. So, Interesting, we're saying, we both said no screen, and yet we're both saying we'd like a reboot. There's something here. Yeah. There's potential. Right. I, I, there's, there, there's enough here that the movie doesn't deliver on. It. Right.
1: So, I'm, I'm hopeful. Yep. Maybe someone out there will make something cool of this.
0: Well, in the meantime, there are plenty of other cool things around, including more Ray Harryhausen movies. Yes. So we will be back uh, in a couple of weeks with more tales of media from the 20th century. In the meantime, Dad, where can they find you online? Uh, you can find me most places. You can find me as Porter. So you can go to com and find uh, what I'm doing there. You can also find me on Twitter as Porter. And Ian, where can people find you?
1: I can be found as ItemCrafting on Twitter. Item Crafting live on Twitch and at itemcrafting.com.
0: And you can find the podcast, you can find us on Twitter at @immpcast and you can find us uh, online at immproject.com and that's where you will find a link to our contact page. Let us know, uh how do you feel about Ray Harryhausen effects versus uh, Douglas Trumbull effects? You can also find a link to our Discord. We would love to hear from you there a link to our shop if you like t-shirts and coffee mugs and notebooks and all kinds of fun things there and you'll find a link to our patreon thanks very much to anybody who's supporting us there you help keep the show going and if you support us on patreon at the movie club level you will get a surprise dvd in the mail every once in a while something that's going to be on a future episode of the i double mp you ever wanted to
1: experience what i do of sitting down and not knowing what this movie is going to be. That's what that's for.
0: (laughs) But thank you very much. Most importantly, thank you for downloading. Thank you for listening. Uh, and we really appreciate it and we hope you'll be back when we are. In the meantime, go find something new to watch.